they will analyze you and break you down to build you up. They'll make you feel like they see you in a way that nobody else has ever seen you. They understand your personality. They are, you know, noticing elements of you that have maybe never been noticed before to make you feel special so that they can then say, Scientology can help you with that. Hello, cult members. I've started calling you things that relate to the episode in question, and today is going to be a bit cultish. Uh, that being the name of the book by American author and linguist Amanda Montel. As you guys might know, I'm always tempted to interview people who know about cults as well as people who know about languages and things like that. So this is a bit of a bonus. And having just had El Hardy on the podcast to talk about the Pentecostal Christian movement, this is a hell of a week for cults on the edge. Even if El did refute that Pentecostalism is a cult, Amanda seems more of the opinion that it is one, as is everything from multi-level marketing companies to podcasts and social media gurus. Her book, Cultish, is really good. One of my favourites that I've read. Uh, She talks about being kidnapped, sort of, by Scientologists and her father's experience in a cult, which she'll talk about today, of course. She's grown up with a thorough understanding of the language of cults and she'll impart on us that knowledge. Statistically, I'd imagine that at least some of you listening are in some form of cult, probably without knowing it. So I'd be really interested to see if any of the culty tricks that Amanda talks about resonate with you and make you question your surroundings. Am I in a cult? Is this a cult? Thanks for the reviews, everyone. By the way, I had a nice one from JK the DJ who wrote, Challenges me every week. Love the interview style. Discussions with guests have educated me, infuriated me, caused me to take a step back and reconsider and keep an open mind. Bravo. I love it so much that I've subscribed. Other lovely reviews came in from CDN Chick, Big G's Mum, Valval89 and Rocky Vasalino. So thank you all of you. I read every single one. Uh, They get sent to me in an email. So please do keep on reviewing. But now you're on the edge with Colts and Amanda Montel. Amanda Montel, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. How are you doing? Oh, my pleasure. I'm great. It's the early morning. I've got some sleep in my eyes, but I'm great. (laughs) Well, you look fine. I forgot that it's different times. I know we were doing it by email, but I just completely forgot about it. Yes, I'm in the cult capital of the world, California, USA. The Church of Scientology is right down the street. And there's also a big Ku Klux Klan sort of smattering over there, isn't there? I mean, I don't know if Los Angeles is is known for its uh, KKK chapter, but undoubtedly it exists. There's extremism and hate everywhere, unfortunately. Oh, well, at least it doesn't discriminate in where it is and everything, right? <laughs> yes, equal opportunity violence. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Awful. So tell me, I want to know from you, right, what what type of language, and this is your expertise, of course, what kind of language do cults use? What words should we be looking out for? Well, the words themselves differ from group to group. There are some patterns. I would say the number one cultish language technique to be mindful of is something called a thought-terminating cliché. This was a phrase that was coined in the early 1960s by a psychologist named Robert J. Lifton, and it describes a sort of stack expression that's easily memorized, easily repeated, and aimed at shutting down independent thinking or questioning. So scrutiny and dissent, these are obviously the enemies to any cultish group which wants to remain in unchecked power. 
So they're going to need a glossary of these catchy phrases to alleviate people's cognitive dissonance and silence them for long enough to stay in power. Uh, thought terminating cliches can sound like all kinds of things. My dad grew up in a pretty notorious cult called Synanon, where a classic thought terminating cliche was act as if. And that simply meant you need to act as if you believe in the leader, Chuck Diedrich's ideologies until you do, because he is all-knowing, and surely, eventually, if you act as if, you will understand. So if anybody ever wanted to push back against anything, anything, they would say, act as if. In New Age spaces, thought-terminating cliches can sound like dismissing valid doubts or anxieties as limiting beliefs. Uh, in QAnon, thought-terminating cliches sound like trust the plan, don't let yourself be ruled by fear, um, I did my research or, research, or do your research. Um, research to a QAnoner obviously does not involve peer-reviewed studies, but <laughs> falling down a confirmation-biased rabbit hole on the internet, confirming beliefs they already hold, sending them down uh, a fantasy wormhole toward explanations for things that feel inexplicable. Um, but thought-terminating cliches also show up in our everyday lives in the form of phrases like, well, it is what it is. It's all in God's plan. Boys will be boys. Everything happens for a reason. I say it is what it is sometimes, and I've heard a lot of people say they hate that, so maybe I should stop. It is what it is is dangerous. I think of in like a mafia context when you're like, why did we have to kill that person? And it's like, it is what it is, you know? It is what it is. Um, okay, I'm thinking more like Kurt, Von Kurt Vonnegut, because he says something like that all the time, doesn't he? Or he did when he was alive, and he it was something like, and so, and so it is, or something. Yeah. And so it is. But I, you know, it is what it is doesn't necessarily have to be destructive or condoning of violence or an excuse to remain in unchecked power. But it, it often does shut down a conversation. If you try to understand why something happened, um, you might be drowning in cognitive dissonance. You're like, this should have gone this way, but instead it went this way. And how am I supposed to feel and once someone says it is what it is, or once you say it is what it is, it prevents you from really analyzing what happened further. It shuts down the conversation. And um, in a higher stakes context, that that can be cultish. I spoke to Kelly Thiel, who was in the Nixium cult, which you talk about or write about in your book. Um, and she talks about exactly that, these thought stopping things. So she, she would it was like they framed uh, the word good to mean positive and building things and anything that was like they linked the word bad to sort of tearing things apart or looking into things. So whenever she asked anything, it was seen as automatically bad, right? That's right. Yeah, Nexium is interesting linguistically because Keith Raniere combined a lot of the rhetoric that L. Ron Hubbard created for Scientology with sort of New Age rhetoric, talk of limiting beliefs and such, um, with, you know, t talk from other fields that he wished he could have succeeded in, linguistics, computer programming, etc. That's another thing that, that L. Ron Hubbard did. Uh, a thought-terminating cliche that was used in in Nexium was, uh, why don't you journal on it? Or you need to journal on it. Um, whenever anybody expressed a question or a feeling that there wasn't, you know, a perfect Nexium answer to, uh, they would just flip the script and they would tell the the questioner, you know, that you you need to you need to work out that trouble. That's a personal problem. You need to journal on it because similar to the phrase act as if certainly if you journal on it enough, you will come back to Keith Raniere's 
tech. Uh, but speaking of redefining existing words, I mean, this is a lot of what cult leaders do. They will take words that you've grown up using your entire life, and they'll twist them and imbue them with new cult-specific meanings. And that can be really disorienting, because when you can no longer trust the language you've been speaking your entire life, that creates a sense of internal conflict that we're really averse to as humans. And in that state, we feel the need to default to the confident speaking person in leadership to tell us what's real. What do we need to do to feel safe? Early on in my research, I interviewed a former member of 3HO, the Happy Healthy Holy Organization. This is a kundalini yoga cultish group who was telling me about how in that group, which was very, very mystical and new age, they redefined the word old soul. Old soul to an average English speaker is a compliment. It means someone who's wise beyond their years. But in 3HO, an old soul was a person who'd reincarnated life after life after life and could never get it right. And this phrase was formulated as a threat. It was wielded as a threat. You can't break X rule in the cult. You can't say X thing that you're not supposed to say or else you will reincarnate down and eventually become an old soul. Wow, that's so fascinating. I've got a bit, I guess this is, I'm just thinking of this now, and I guess this is maybe controversial in the current climate to even ask this, but I know that, you know, some of the, what people would call uh, woke ideology, I know people disagree about the use of the word and everything. They use some of these terms like, you know, do better, educate yourself would those be thought stopping cultish things or is, or is or not they certainly can be i mean whenever a piece of language causes you to stop questioning stop thinking for yourself uh engenders a strong emotional reaction that then impedes some of that critical thinking that goes on um or that should go on that can certainly be a a piece of cultish language that doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't a nugget of wisdom there um but when a group of people rallies around a certain buzzword or slogan without the ability to explore nuance or question like why why do we say this phrase um that certainly a, a piece of language worth questioning. I, I found it fascinating the way that a lot of um, seemingly innocuous phrases have been weaponized and politicized across the political spectrum. I mean, certainly in, in left-wing groups, I, I just think it's interesting how people really um, rally behind the phrase trust science as if science were an ideology, as if it were a sort of religion. Um, and this is the problem with the ideological schisms that have been created in our culture, in large part due to this cultish rhetoric. We shouldn't need a phrase, trust science. Like, science is a self-correcting mechanism. Like, there's no, you know what I'm saying? Like, and obviously science is, is conducted imperfectly. But when people sort of, people certainly who've never even cared about science before, like, r rally behind, like, the phrase, like, trust science, um, I find that what's behind that is is oftentimes a, a cultish mentality. Right. Well, I, I, so I mentioned sort of the, the woke ideology, which you'd associate with maybe maybe sort of progressive left stuff. But then there's also on the other side, uh, Ben Shapiro, he often says, fats don't have feelings. And that annoys me a bit. And, I, and I, again, I, I'm going to be careful because Ben Shapiro fans can be quite uh, uh, angry. And I like, I so I just want to say he's fine. There's nothing wrong with him. But he's quite 
religious. He's an, he's Orthodox Jewish. I'm Jewish myself, so I'm not you know again not having a go at anyone. They yeah. So so but but Orthodox you know he wears the whole thing on you know so he and he believes and his his views are often based on religion. Uh, his views on abortion, for example. So how can he be going around saying facts don't and then all of his followers say it? Is that again? Is that cultish language? Well, I have to imagine that Ben Shapiro is experiencing an enormous amount of cognitive dissonance, right? Because he's having to hold these two really conflicting systems in mind at once. His, you know, pretty intense religious upbringing and beliefs, but also um, at least the the desire to ascribe to some sort of fact-based system. Um, and those two things are sort of fundamentally in conflict. Um, they really can be. I think you certainly can participate in religious ritual, religious community without believing in much of the, the metaphysical stuff. And I think in Judaism, you find that a lot. I mean, most of my friends who are Jewish are like culturally Jewish and they lean on the rituals and even the prayers specifically during times of crisis when there's a death in the family or when there's a high holiday, you know, and, and these and these rituals are profoundly comforting to people. Um, but I think when there is so, so much cognitive dissonance, the way to assuage that is with confirmation bias is with these sort of extreme beliefs and and the rhetoric to reflect them. So the more cognitive dissonance you experience, the more cultish your slogans will sound because they're there to comfort you and to, and to put that cognitive dissonance to bed. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take 
to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. I think, I feel like you sort of have to use those slogans. I was doing, and I've been going on about it a bit, but I was doing a YouTube course to get better at being a YouTuber because I do the podcast on YouTube as well. And so much of the stuff was about like uh, inventing your own sacred words that you use that like only people in your uh, community will know, uh, creating non-believers, so talking about the people trying to bring you down and that kind of thing. And that creates a cult. So, I mean, do we see that? Is that just everywhere? Is everything to is cultism just on a spectrum and and everything is in some way cultish? Yes, that's my entire argument. I mean, my book is called Cultish and starts out talking with the most extreme groups like Jonestown and Heavensgate, then moving to talk about Scientology, multi-level marketing, cult fitness groups like SoulCycle, and finally social media cults, because I'm trying to create the argument that cultishness is the spectrum. We all participate in it to some degree, especially especially in a country like the United States, which has this very consistent relationship with cults for various reasons, one of them being that we just have a very fraught relationship with institutional support systems that are supposed to provide us with, you know, healthcare and governmental support. We, we really mistrust uh, institutions, particularly during times of cultural tumult, like now and like during the 70s, which was another peak cult era. You know, when we get sick, when we lose our jobs, we don't trust that the United States will be there to save us. And so we oftentimes turn toward these alternative sources to fill the voids. And sometimes those alternative sources are more or less harmless, but sometimes they're really destructive. And I think, you know, I spoke to a Jonestown survivor named Laura Johnston Cole, who not only survived Jonestown, the most egregious, tragic cult massacre of all time, then she went and joined Synanon, which was the group that my dad was in. Oh my God. So she was such an optimist. <laughs> no, she was she was not deranged. She was not disturbed. She was just such an unbelievable idealist that she wasn't willing to give up on the idea that the solutions to the world's most urgent problems could be found in communal living. Um, after that, though, she finally gave up on the sort of one commune solution. And, you know, she told me, though, I... I believe in brainwashing, she said, but I think in, in, to some degree, I brainwashed myself. She was like, I, I think you could call it good vibes sometimes. Sometimes you don't want to see the world as it is. And, and it's, it's almost impossible, actually, to perceive uh, ground truth as it is. You know, we all bring our own subjective perspectives to the table. But sometimes you sort of need, well, oftentimes, almost always, you need to tell yourself a story about what's going on in the world and what's going on in your own life, or else it would all be crushingly overwhelming, um, especially when we have access to all the information that we do now. We just, we can't handle it. Like, our human minds and bodies were not built to handle it. So we need to tell ourselves a story. And it's not about being so cynical and so skeptical that we resist any group that has rituals or that uses this language from time to time. It's about having that awareness and having that, you know, tingle in the back of your brain that tells you there's some amount of make-believe here. If you can't, 
you know, take off the uniform at the end of the day, take off the linguistic uniform at the end of the day, return to an identity and a vocabulary that is more complex than one one given group or guru, that's when you know that you're in a group that's a little bit too cultish for comfort. And interestingly, that Jonestown survivor told me that her solution was to be a member of multiple different quote-unquote cults or groups that were along this cultish spectrum. She was like, you know, I care about immigrants' rights, so now I volunteer with this one group who does that one thing. I also meditate with this other group, and I'm a Quaker now, and sometimes I get together with my old Synanon buddies and we shoot the shit about the good old days in that cult. <laughs> um, so she was like, I still, I still want that sense of communality. But she said, I don't think it's possible to find it with one person or one group because that's, you know, ripe for exploitation and power abuse. That reminds me of this woman that um, I helped exercise in a church in Argentina. And when I went back a year later... Exercise was, like ghosts or exercise like jumping jacks? <laughs> uh, ghosts. It was the ghost. I was like, I was with this... I did a thing with the BBC for uh, with a priest who who it turned out was abusing uh, the women who, who had schizophrenia and other kinds of things. Um, and so we sort of exposed that. But while exposing that, I was like his apprentice. So I was like going around exercising people. And this woman, uh, I, when I went back a year later, she was like, oh, I'm done with all that. And I was like, oh, that's good. Maybe she'll get psychological help. And she said, now I go to multiple exorcisms, like with loads of churches. So like every day she's at a different church and they're all different doing different exorcisms on her and i figured like that's quite similar isn't it she's just getting like <laughs> all the communal expulsion of demons yeah i think that <laughs> right that's a that's a loophole this woman <laughs> is clearly obsessed with exorcisms and uh that's something to unpack yeah no i mean <laughs> for her that is that is the cult of exorcisms and whether you're at one church or another that's <laughs> something you need to uh you need to look at but um yeah, shit. What was I going to say? Oh, I lost my thought because I'm so distracted by that now. That because oh, I said that's... mad things about exorcisms. It, yeah, that... no. I now I feel like I need to be exercised because I'm going to be thinking about this all day. Oh, <laughs> it feels good. I mean, people get better from having exorcisms. They they have all sorts of mental health issues that seem to improve for like a year or so, and then the placebo wears off, and then they get worse than they were. So if you want like a real like just a good sort of uh, I don't know a year of just like whoa, then go and go and get an exorcism. Or just, like, do some psychedelics all by your own in, in the desert, you know? Like, go with your closest friends, find some trees, touch the trees, and uh, I think you'll probably experience some similar effects. This is now, yeah. the, this is now my cult. Just come <laughs> into the woods with me. <laughs> You're into your psychedelics. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, yeah, no, I'm a fan of, uh, of a shroomy moment from time to time, you know? Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. I couldn't be out of control. Uh, I'd be so uh, no, too much stress for me. Oh, well, you know, what's funny. Speaking of language, I feel like the term trip is a misnomer because when I'm on shrooms, I actually feel more grounded than I do otherwise. It's sort of like a perspective shifting experience. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to coerce <laughs> or, or convince you of anything. Get in touch with Amanda for all the psychedelics that you could ever want. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> No, no. Just shrooms yeah. that taste like Lucky Charms. That's what I have. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, why? why? Oh, Lucky Charms. Oh, I used to love those. That's, they're really American. I think they have them in the UK now as well. But they're just like a bowl of like sh sugar. It's just insane amounts of sugar. But they, I can't think of a happier memory in my childhood than just like shoving those down my throat. 
See, that's what this country is good for. It's like on one end you have delicious sugary cereal, and then on the other hand you, and other end you have cults like the Mansons in Jonestown. It's just, it's it's the two extremes here yeah. in the U.S. <laughs> we w- let's get let's get into Jonestown actually, because because not everybody knows um, what Jonestown is and what happened. Do you want to like relate the the story? Sure. So Jonestown, there's a lot of mythology surrounding what happened in Jonestown, in large part because of the media coverage that happened after the tragedy. And it was in large part sensational and alarmist and really dehumanized a lot of the people who died. But Jonestown originally started as an integrationist church group. It started with pretty pure intentions by this guy named Jim Jones, who started out as a young, charismatic pastor who preached anti-racism ideals. Um, Later, after the group moved to California, it became more of a socio-political movement. Um, Jim Jones had connections to all sorts of progressive people, from Angela Davis to the Black Panthers. He seemed really to walk the walk of progressiveness and anti-racism. But as he grew his following and as his following sort of changed from this church group to more of a socio-political movement, he couldn't really resist the the desire to um, grab power by the balls, if you will. Uh, this is what happens with a lot of these cult leaders. We think of them as these evil geniuses, these masterminds who have a grand plan from the start. But really, they're these opportunists who start with an idea And then if enough people buy into it and it grows and grows and grows, they're not able to pump the brakes. They're not able to have the foresight or the compassion to resist the the impulse to want to follow that power as quickly and voraciously as they can. So Jim Jones ultimately decided that he wanted to start a compound in Guyana. Um, And he wanted his followers to move there to start this socialist utopia outside of what he saw as the fascist deep state in the United States. Now, this ended tragically. Um, Over 900 people ended up dying in what is framed as a cult suicide, but was really a cult murder um, in Guyana after a California congressman was tipped off that something weird was going on in Jonestown. It was an unlivable commune. They were promised this paradise, but uh, they had, you know, they had no ability to grow crops. It was backbreaking labor to construct the place. Um, and so a lot of people wanted to leave and their family members contacted this congressman, Congressman Ryan in, in California, and asked him to go and check the place out. He did. Jim Jones wined and dined him, but he knew ultimately that he was going to be found out and arrested, punished for creating this abusive environment. And so instead of going down uh, with, you know, pride and, and responsibility, he decided if I'm going down, everyone else is going to go down with me. And so he concocted this poisonous elixir containing grape flavor aid and uh, cyanide, and he coerced everyone in Jonestown, there were over 900 people there, to ingest the noxious, deadly poison and All of those people who did died. Um, The phrase drink the Kool-Aid comes from this tragedy. You often hear people use the phrase drink the Kool-Aid to describe, you know, the blind following of some idea. Um, It's it's really a cliche at this point. Um, But actually, the the concoction they drank wasn't even Kool-Aid. It was a 
It was a sh- it was a bottom shelf brand called Flavorade. But anyway, um, that's that's really what happened. And the the media coverage of the event painted all of the people who died there as these brainwashed, mind controlled cultists. But a lot of them didn't even want to be there. And those that did, again, were suffering this immense cognitive dissonance. They knew that they couldn't question their fate because those who tried to run off of the compound were shot. So they either had to justify what was going to happen to them using all of the rhetoric that Jim Jones had pumped them with for years and years um, or or not. And in those moments, you kind of you have to tell yourself what you need to tell yourself in order to accept this, you know, tragic fate. Um, so Jonestown's interesting because it it really put the word cult on the map in the United States as something that everybody should know about and that everyone should fear. Prior to the Manson family murders of 1969 and the Jonestown massacre of 1978, that's when it occurred, most people thought of a cult as, oh, I don't know, this like fringy group of kooks and quacks and heretics It was known as something unconventional, but not necessarily evil and nefarious. Then after Jonestown, you know, every suburban mother knew what a cult was. And that's the event that gave way to the satanic panic of the 80s when, you know, suburban mothers thought that Satanists were trying to, you know, like kidnap their children late at night, which wasn't true. Um, And a lot of the sensationalism that surrounds um, like alternative beliefs um, and, and you know, writing off people that we don't agree with as cultists stems from from the Jonestown tragedy. How do you find yourself getting into a position? You've started a bit of a cult and you probably don't even imagine it in your mind as a cult. And then, before, I mean, it reminds me a little bit of the John McAfee thing in Belize. You know, he had this compound and, he, you know, you're ending up shooting people who leave. Um, how does that is that cognitive dissonance or you're saying he they might not be they might might not be psychopaths it's a really interesting question first of all it doesn't happen overnight obviously um and there well jim jones also had an addiction to prescription pills so there could have been some psychosis going on um but yeah i mean there's all kinds of conjecture about what qualities cult leaders share in common they're definitely not like normal everyday people with an average moral compass um there's talk of you know narcissism um, there's talk of patriarchy. You know, you can't help but notice that uh, most notorious cult leaders from Jim Jones to Jeff Bezos are these sort of like white dudes of privilege, you know, um, who maybe feel this sense of entitlement that like, yeah, this amount of power makes sense for me, um, you know, and, and feel confident preaching about God and government. And then also people are, are more willing to believe uh, a confident middle aged white man when he talks about God and government. But there are female cult leaders, too. It's just that they are more often than not found in like the the wellness space there was the crypto woman oh crypto <laughs> no tell me tell me oh do you know, i thought you might know i uh, it was a bbc dr ruja ignatova persuaded millions to join her financial revolution then she disappeared and there's all sorts wow. of it's this podcast uh, bbc did and and it's mad and she got like loads of people giving her all their money and then she sort of and it became culty as well it was all like the same the stuff you talk about and write about uh, all the all the words and the expressions and these things and then she was just gone with all the money uh, crypto is unbelievably cultish yeah. um and there are so many i mean there are literal crypto islands <laughs> where people are are paying pilgrimage to but i i mean that story i'm unfamiliar with it but the first thing it makes me think of is elizabeth holmes who was sort of like you know silicon valley's first female billionaire she was exactly the sort of female billionaire silicon valley was ready for at the time um and by way of juxtaposition against the backdrop of all of these bros she seemed like even more alluring you know she was like 
blonde and had big blue eyes and this deep, like, confusing but also sort of alluring, mysterious voice. And she was inventing not, you know, a silly gadget or toy, but this life-saving device. Um, and so, yeah, sometimes a woman can, like, stand out as an outlier in a space, and that makes her even more appealing. Um, but you you also see women leading, you know, wellness-type cults, anti-vax cults, because, again, we give people the power we think they deserve. We are more willing to receive a message from the mouth of someone we expect to be delivering it. And so, yeah, when, when you know, a Jim Jones type is speaking with authority about Nietzsche and the Bible, sometimes within the space of one sentence, we're like, oh, yes, of course that makes sense for him to be speaking with authority on that. Sounds like Jordan Peterson. Yeah, well, exactly, <laughs> exactly. We, we, want, we want to worship these figures, again, especially during times of crisis when we feel existentially unmoored. We don't know what to believe. And here is someone with poise and buzzwords and a rhetoric all their own telling us who we can be, telling us that there is hope. And that's really at the core of all of these cultish groups is is a sense of, of overabundant idealism rather than desperation or anything else. Also, speaking of like how a person could get that far, not so much on the cult leader end, but on the cult follower end, sometimes people have trouble, you know, imagining how you could buy into these false promises and the rhetoric and the bullshit. But sometimes I make the analog that Winding up 10 years into a cult is not that different from winding up 10 years in a toxic relationship, a one-on-one cult, if you will. Um, And lots of people have experiences with, you know, staying in a relationship too long with a partner you know is bad for you but don't want to be bad for you or staying 10 years in a job with a boss who's super abusive and exploitative. But that sunk cost fallacy tells you I, I can't give up now. So there are a lot of biases at play. Play that that keep people in groups, um, even as destructive as Jonestown. That's really interesting. I love the the the, the sunk cost fallacy because that just like plagues my life. That's like if we go on a walk and we realize we've gone the wrong way, I'd have to like go all the way around somewhere so I don't walk back the way I just went. It, that that and I, and that was I got that impression of obviously Kelly Thiel with Nixium as well that she got so far in and it was also that she had recruited a lot of people. So it's like she couldn't let herself believe that it was bad because she'd brought so many people in and like the shame that would cause her. And that's another woman who I guess wasn't the cult leader, but Alison Mack, who was the actress from Smallville. She was, she was, was what, how was she involved in Nixium? Yeah, well, she was sort of a second banana to Keith Raniere. And like second speaking banana. of the gender dynamics, this is, <laughs> do you not have that phrase in the UK? <laughs> no, I like that. Second banana. Second, First banana. Second banana. I'm second banana. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you're sort of lackey, if you will. You're, um, you're gopher. Uh, yeah, second banana. That's also kind of like an antiquated phrase now that I'm thinking about it. I'm not 80 years old, <laughs> but um, it's useful. Yeah, every every cult leader needs a second banana. But uh, speaking of the of the gender and power dynamics, a lot of the times what you'll find is, uh, you know, a, a middle aged white dude at the top. And then sort of a, a gaggle of like pretty white women, just one tier of power beneath him. That's like the inner circle. And they do his bidding and they sort of exchange their their sexuality and their whiteness for a little bit more power and proximity to the guy at the top. And um, But they're under incredible duress and coercion as well. So Alison Mack was someone who like sex trafficked a lot of the women who got branded in, in Nexium, And she too was being 
being abused by Keith Raniere, but at the same time, there were plenty of people who did not wind up in her position, who were not willing to um, sex traffic and destroy others' lives in that way. So uh, I think, you know, this this conversation requires like a lot of a lot of dissonance in a sense, a lot of nuance, I guess, is the the like positive way of framing dissonance. You you have to be able to like have empathy for people who at the same time did really awful things. And, and that's and that's really hard for people. And, and we don't want to we don't want to have those two things. We want to write people off as as villains. Um, but I think that is why we're in one of the most cultish eras of all time. It's really hard for us to understand. I suppose it goes back to the Nazis and banality of evil and i suppose do you feel a little sorry for alison mack i guess she's in prison now yeah i mean i feel sorry for her in the way that i can generate empathy for anyone who is the victim of abuse um i think she she deserved uh the consequences that she's gotten um again there were plenty of people who would not have gone as far as she did um but I, I tend not to judge because I, I feel more comfortable in the position of curiosity. I psychologically and linguistically want to understand what got her there rather than just writing her off as a villain. That's really interesting because as part of this YouTube course, I had to sort of really look at what if I were to have slogans or mottos or how I would describe the podcast um, with those kinds of things. And I've always said curiosity over judgment. Um, the same, you know, that same thing. I really like that without wanting to become culty, so maybe I should stop saying it. <laughs> well, the thing is that good marketing and cultishness, there's a Venn diagram there. <laughs> I suppose, you know, you just want to create room for pushback and questioning, you know, with with compassion, you know, obviously on the internet, there are people who just sling hate and vitriol, and, and that's not the same as dissent. So you want to create room for a conversation, for a dialogue. You, you know, want to make sure that people have the ability to subscribe to and believe in what other people say in addition to you. Um, there has to be room for for disagreement. There has to be um, low exit costs. Like if someone doesn't, you know, want to subscribe to your brand anymore, that should be perfectly okay. Um, and and yeah, you don't want to have this, this vast glossary of euphemisms and special buzzwords and us-them labels and thought-terminating cliches because when all of that works together is when you start to get too cultish for comfort but certainly I do the same thing like when I market my book I mean it's the biggest irony in the world but like when I market cultish like I too I too have these little phrases that I say like too cultish for comfort I've said that before you know like we you have to have these sort of zingy phrases to come back to to get people to remember you and want to sort of quote unquote follow you I mean that's one of the first things I noticed when I downloaded Instagram for the first time in 2012 that your connections there were called your follow I just found it so alarming. I was like, is Instagram not encouraging us to all build our own little cult? And as it turns out, that's true. You know, we are all incentivized to create the most engaging content possible, even if it's false, even if it's, you know, sensationalizing, um, even if it's negative for the sake of negativity, because that's what's going to keep people in your cult longer. Yeah. Or your business. Or, yeah, I mean, that that's that we all have to play the game to an extent. And I'm sure a lot of listeners will be 
will relate to that. They'll be thinking about their own businesses and their own things and the way that they've had to frame it in these zingy kind of ways. Uh, I do want listeners to know, you know, that they can leave and unsubscribe at any time, at the, <laughs> be it at their, at their own risk, at their own peril. I won't say what will happen next, but it, it, won't, it won't be good. Do you think um, there are, I feel like, and, I, and again, I'm, I'm always, I want to be wary about, because I, I don't think people are good at recognizing things in themselves. So, but I feel like I've always had a natural aversion to to cults, and the, the closest one I have is is sports, my football team. But even as a kid, I knew it was stupid. I remember thinking like, I love them, and it will affect my entire week if they win or lose. But this is stupid, and I I don't really believe it. I know how stupid it is. And I remember going to like Camp America, which is like the agency that sends. British kids or 19-year-olds out to be camp counsellors, uh, you know, this, which is a very American tradition, partly because you get better weather and there's all these like nice places around lakes and stuff. So I went to this one in California and just the way it was, it, I know you were saying that America can be a little bit culty. Of course, Britain has it's enough cults as well. Um, but the whole, I, I learned the whole thing, like I pledge allegiance to the flag and all that stuff. And like the amount of songs and the amount of, and everyone loved it. And I, I actually got to a point where I thought, is there something wrong with me because i find everything really annoying um and, 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 <laughs> it's very going, english of you <laughs> well maybe that's it as well so maybe i belong to my own cult of like being uh grouchy of jadedness <laughs> and dryness <laughs> yeah. i remember in college i um or sorry, in high school, I hosted a French foreign exchange student who was just unbelievably disdainful <laughs> of our yes. American exuberance. It was just enthusiasm that offended him. And I think enthusiasm and exuberance is like a key cult ingredient. Like you need to be able to really lean into that serotonin and dopamine spiking ritual that you do in your circle like at summer camp actually we want to cover uh the cult of summer camp on my on my podcast where we cover all the cults that i wasn't able to touch on in the book but um but yes like i think you know i i too grew up quite skeptical because i had this cult survivor in the family my dad who grew up to be a research scientist. I come from this long line of research scientists who sort of worship at the altar of critical thinking and questioning. Your mom called you unculty. Yes, my mom. Right. Well, we're we're all a little bit anti-group. Like we would say that with pride growing up. Um, and so my, my spidey senses were quite sensitive to religious groups. Like my middle school best friend was an evangelical Christian. And I would sort of, I would, I would go, like you going to the, the exorcisms, I would go with her to the mega church at the age of 12 just to just to study it just because the anthropological experience is fascinating the language was fascinating um and you know i i was a member of like different theater programs growing up that i kept dropping out of because theater kids can be really culty and um and so but at the same time like i i crave that sense of community and belonging and identity and meaning and ritual that leads people to want to join cults. There's just something in me as well that can't stand like the I'm I'm still waiting though. I'm waiting. If anyone has a cult for me, <laughs> I maybe maybe a small cult. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you, you you did say you said theater. Like you were saying the word theater, right? Not not like, like or some people say theater. You weren't saying like theater is in Scientology's word for like weird waves or something right no 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 Th theater t-h-e-a-t-e-r like you know 
musicals. <laughs> because you did go and get sort of kidnapped by Scientologists, right? This is this is just a side effect of living in Los Angeles. Everybody's been to the Church of Scientology at least once. But yes, when I was 19, and I write about this in the book, I tell a little story. Um, I was coerced by a very beautiful, charismatic friend to take a personality test at the Church of Scientology. Oh, and I guess this is what I'll say about me being averse to cults. I am totally susceptible to cults of one. I have had many a uh, cult of one relationship with friends and partners. Like if someone in a one-on-one -on -one setting is looking at me in the eyes and being like, I see you, you're special. They could easily flip that around and abuse me later. So I'm working on that. We're in therapy. But, um, <laughs> but yes, I do tell a story in the book about, uh, about my exposure to Scientology's love bombing tactics. Um, and it was, uh, <laughs> it was, it was, it was worth it for the story. No, it was, that was good. And there's been loads of like there's been there's been comedy series and things where people there's one in Britain called Peep Show where the main character goes and gets those tests and stuff and he starts going like oh my god my my life is terrible I need these people that's what they do they they will analyze you and break you down to build you up they'll make you feel like they see you in a way that nobody else has ever seen you they understand your personality they are you know noticing elements of you that have maybe never been noticed before to make you feel special so that they can then say Scientology can help you with that. And then they take you to a place where they try to sell you things. And anyway, I ended up grabbing my friend by the wrist and running the hell out of there. <laughs> Is it true that, and I read this in your book, that Katie Holmes was cast as Tom Cruise's girlfriend? Were, were they the actors? Well, so, yes. Celebrities in Scientology receive this special treatment. They're like Scientology's mascots. Um, and they don't quite have to follow all of the rules of the more plebeian Scientologists. Um, but yes, it is, you know, the role of the church, if you will, to select an appropriate partner for their most prized members um, in the way that sort of arranged marriage happens in a lot of religions. That's weird. He's weird. I've spoken to some ex-Scientologists and they a lot of them are really nice about John Travolta and they say, oh, he's just a bit sad and he doesn't quite get it. He doesn't, they, I, I think the, the uh, I think, I guess the consensus is that John Travolta's not that smart, whereas Tom Cruise is, is quite smart and not That's scarier that nice. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. That's bad, isn't it? Hey, I've written in my notes, right? Because I do my, I do my notes. I like, I'm re I read the books for the podcast at like four in the morning and I just sort of grab my phone and I go uh, and write like a little note every now and then, which is, and then I'm awake because I've looked at the screen. Um, what have I written this for? The guy at USC, which is a university, who choked on his windpipe. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. Um, that's from a little footnote in the book where I set up a story of a cult initiation gone terribly wrong and then reveal that it actually wasn't a cult initiation. It was frat hazing. <laughs> oh, yeah. And why did he choke? Did he die? He died, yeah. This was in the 50s, I believe. Um, there was a guy who you know, just was following orders during his frat hazing activities that required him to digest this like nightmarish buffet of pigs, brains and other nastiness. And um, yeah, he ended up like devouring the, the food so quickly that he choked on something and was rushed to the hospital, but was dead on arrival. And yet no one in that group was 
punished or addressed as a cult leader because it was a fraternity. And fraternities and sororities, well, particularly fraternities, are, you know, that's in a way the most accepted form of cultishness in this culture. I mean, they literally wear robes, stand around, say prayers, wake up (laughs) in the middle of the night and force people to do unspeakable violent things um, for group solidarity, for exclusivity. It is it checks off every box that could possibly define something as a cult. And yet, because it's associated with this, you know, hallowed American tradition, we accept it without question. Well, does it need one charismatic leader or is that not necessary? I mean, this is the thing. And I suppose we could have led this whole entire interview with this is that, you know, when people ask me, what is my personal definition of a cult? What even is a cult? I'm like, Listen, when I started researching this book, I was hoping that my understanding of the word cult would become more succinct and clearer. But in fact, speaking to so many scholars from sociologists and psychologists to religious studies scholars to linguists, it became clear that the word cult is so subjective and so hazy and so context dependent and so judgment loaded that the word itself is not enough to be able to define what particular dangers are on the table. I mean, you can list certain qualities like charismatic leaders, um, us versus them dichotomies, and justify the means philosophies, supernatural beliefs. And yet not every group that has been or could be called a cult will check off every box. And yet there are plenty of accepted groups like fraternities and sororities or Silicon Valley companies, government bodies that will check off every single box. So I think this, you know, wide spectrum of groups that the word cult can be associated with just really says something about how unbelievably cultish our culture has become. That's alliterative. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I think like look to QAnon. QAnon doesn't have one charismatic unifying leader. And yet that is definitely a dangerous cult, as we saw with the January 6th insurrection in the United States and even before then. So um, it's it's really tricky. I think there is not one single list of criteria that everyone can agree on. This defines a cult. I hated that stuff at university as well. So it wasn't just the Camp America stuff in America. Back in England at the university, let's all like drink piss out of a shoe. And I was like, exactly. Who would do that? A cult follower. You know what I mean? But it's because it's due to cultural normativity, we accept it. And yet if a bunch of ladies in white robes in a field were doing those things, we would be screaming cult. Yeah, I think nightclubbing is a little bit cultish because I never got that either. Maybe I'm just listing things I don't enjoy and then just go, that's a cult, that's a cult. Any well, hobby that's what I we don't do. Like. <laughs> yeah. We can't help it. We can't help it. But, you know, yeah. that's why that's why I, like, have this podcast that I now do, which is more lighthearted and pop culture but I basically just, like, call out groups in our culture, in the zeitgeist, that seem culty, and we discuss them to figure out um, whether they're a live-your-life, a watch-your-back, or a get-the-fuck-out-level cult. What's your podcast called? Where people, when people can get it, and I always ask, where can people get it? Get it in the podcast place, right? Yeah, anywhere you listen to podcasts. It's called Sounds Like a Cult, and it's a sort of lighthearted, structured conversation, bantery podcast um, where every week we pick a different group from fraternities and sororities. We actually did an episode on that to Soul Cycle, to Trader Joe's, to celebrity stands, to Disney adults, and we discuss it with guests and games and listener Collins and that sort of thing to try to figure out this group 
sounds like a cult, but is it really? And if so, how bad is it? <laughs> and that sounds great. And your book, Cultish, is on, honestly, I loved it. And I was telling you this before Thanks. as well. I just, I just love it. I love how it's written and I laughed a lot. And it's really, really, really interesting and, and, and easy to read. Like, as, as not, not because it's not intellectual, you know, I don't mean, I mean it in a good way. Just like, just like, oh, I'm enjoying this at four in the morning while I make all my <laughs> I notes. I try to keep it, I try to keep it digestible. You know, a lot of nonfiction, especially when you're talking about linguistics, can can feel a little explainery and inaccessible. And I try to keep it fun as much as I can. Yeah, well, I was fascinated by your your background in linguistics. I, I'm into languages myself. I'm always showing off about it on the podcast. Um, but one language that I, I've never tried to learn is um, talking in tongues. Tell me a bit about that. What's going on there? Sure. Uh, talking in tongues, otherwise known as glossolalia. I actually spoke to the only living linguist who studies glossolalia about what exactly is going on here. It's really this solidarity forming exercise that happens in a lot of charismatic Christian church groups. Um, not a lot, in some charismatic uh, Christian church groups, um, where you basically start doing the equivalent of shaking your body around to relieve stress, but with your voice. And what this glossolalia scholar found is that Whenever someone speaks in tongues, you know, the story that they've been told is that this is some ancient or holy language that is being, you know, transmuted through them and that another person is interpreting. It's a message from heaven um, or, or from, you know, ancient angels. But interestingly, when people speak glossolalia, they're always using the same phonetic system that exists in their native language. So you would never hear an English speaker speak glossolalia in a way that sounded like Hebrew and used like Hebrew consonant combinations and vice versa. Um, that's just one example. You used an example of a North, North Yorkshire person or a Yorkshire person, which I quite liked as a, as a British sort of reference. <laughs> yeah, you would never hear like an American person uh, speaking glossolalia with like Yorkshire vowels. Yeah. <laughs> that would right, be amazing. Me, oh, is the devil gonna get you? All right. That's terrible. I, I can't do it. Yeah, like I can't even do it. I'm not even <laughs> attempt it. It's going to be offensive. But um, yeah. yeah so, <laughs> so glossolalia. I mean, it's 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 a faith based practice. So you can't. There's no way to say like what it is. Um, but what it does is to um create this really powerful conversion event. Um, where the first time you speak in tongues or you use glossolalia, you feel transformed. You feel as if you can't go back to the way that your life was before and it really bonds you to the group of people that you do it in front of and certainly to the leader who um sort of directed the whole endeavor uh yeah i i was oh my gosh it was probably probably one of my favorite parts of the book was writing about glossolalia because i i watched this documentary jesus camp when i was yeah. a teenager i, I don't that. know if anyone's seen it yeah and i i've seen that movie probably five times because i cannot look away i just like rubberneck at that film because it it, it involves children at camp speaking in tongues. Um, so it's this convergence of, of all of this cultishness in this country that really, really just enchanted me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it is crazy that. And it reminds me as, as well when I did that exorcism on, on, on this one woman in particular, she's screaming and screaming and stuff. And then she suddenly sort of after, she's this 17 year old woman. And after doing all the screaming, she then just sort of looked up and she caught my eye for a moment. There's loads of people in the room and she just looked up at me 
and and I'm like scared out of my mind. Obviously, I don't believe in anything paranormal, but just because there's somebody that's having freaky. a mental yeah, she's having a mental breakdown yeah. in front of me, and that's really scary to be in the room with someone like you know you watch it on TV or whatever. It's like okay, but when you're actually there and you know this woman because you've been interviewing her, you've met the family, and you're like, wow, she's going through something now right in front of me. You don't often see that, and she looked right up at me, and she had this. She started smiling, and I was terrified then because she's been screaming, and she just said, "She's mine." Like that, you can't have her. And I was like, oh, oh, no, this is horrible. Like, where's your mind right now? The other thing that glossolalia does is put you in a state of dissociation. It's like you have a difficult time differentiating reality from a fantasy experience when you're when you're speaking in tongues. It's it's almost similar to the trance like state that you might be in when you're say like driving home from work and you just get like lost in thought and then all of a sudden you've like missed your exit or you or you pull up to your driveway and you're just like how the fuck did I get here like I I didn't even feel like I was here it's like an extreme version of that that can be weaponized um by a pernicious guru man and you're like yeah I got home I've killed four people on the way home I don't even know how I did it you know tell me before I, I don't I don't know how much time you got but I want to ask you about heaven's gate do you, have time? Do you have some time? Yeah, yeah. I have like 10 more minutes. Um, yeah, Heaven's Gate is the other sort of notorious American cult that ended in a suicide. This one was really a suicide. 39 people died in the 90s. It was a UFO millenarian doomsday cult um, that uh, just offered sort of uh, digital technology sci-fi versions of answers to humanity's oldest questions. Why are we here? Where do we go after we die? What does all of this mean? It was, you know, the the peak of like UFO fascination in this country um, in the 90s. And so uh, this, this guy named Marshall Applewhite and his co-cult leader, Bonnie Nettles, who actually died of cancer before the suicide, they created this group that promised that the, the kingdom of God was in outer space. And all you needed in order to access it was to um, leave your earthly vehicle to transition to the next evolutionary level above human. And when people first joined the group, they thought that that could happen while you were alive in your earthly body, in your vehicle, as they called it. Um, but then, as it tends to happen, the ideology became more extreme and more extreme. And by the end, the message was that you needed to leave your vehicle, you needed to leave this human meat suit so that you could then board this spacecraft following this comet that would take you then to the kingdom of God. And that sounds cuckoo, <laughs> but um, again, it started out more innocently than that. It started out with people who had lost trust in the churches that they'd grown up with, who were not interested in that anymore, but who still craved spirituality. And here was this wild-eyed man who spoke with this paternalistic voice who was there to offer this alternative solution. And the language of Heaven's Gate was really interesting because it was all sort of sci-fi themed to match the messaging. So in Heaven's Gate, for example, they all lived in this big mansion together. And when they were in the mansion, that was referred to as in craft. When they were out in the secular world, that was out of craft. The kitchen was referred to as the neutral lab. The laundry room was referred to as the fiber lab. Everybody, when they joined Heaven's Gate, was stripped of their old name and assigned a new name, um, which all ended in the same suffix, Odie. So 
All of this stuff might sound like gobbledygook, but it was performing real religious work. And not to mention, like, we all love the feeling of speaking an exclusive language that no one else can understand. It imbues us all with a sense of elitism, with with intellectualism. And that's what cultish leaders like Marshall Applewhite take to an extreme. And then they were just found. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.